chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 11 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 26. Hear now God's word. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And kill the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith, and, in it, and through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall in all th- you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every every one of you from your iniquities. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. Let me begin again by acknowledging some of the resources that have been really helpful to me, N.T. Wright's commentaries and John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts. We have been following a story, uh, a narrative, a a record of what actually happened here. Uh, we We began just after the crucifixion with the resurrection of Jesus and uh, we've been following this story. So things are happening very, very fast in Jerusalem. Uh, first, the brutal crucifixion seemed to be a complete reversal of fortune. All hopes were dashed. We had hoped that Jesus was going to be the king that was going to restore Israel uh, and, and vanquish all of Israel's enemies, and now he's dead. Next, the astonishing resurrection reversed the crucifixion. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Then the ascension of the Messiah to the throne of God 
and the outpouring of his spirit upon his disciples. And then as they, as all those were gathered in Jerusalem, heard them speaking in their own language, it was, it was like an explosion in Jerusalem. It, it, I mean, it's enormous when you think 3,000 people were converted in one day. That means there were more than 3,000 who had gathered. So we go from 120 to 3,000 who were baptized and added to the church in one day. And next came the undeniable and dramatic healing of the lame man who sat in the temple in front of the beautiful gate who had been there for years. His family brought him every day where he could beg for alms. Everybody knew it. He was a, he was a fixture there, well known. And so day after day, he sat there waiting for God to do something. And as a result of this healing, now a spontaneous crowd has run together and now has assembled in Solomon's porch uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Now Solomon's porch uh, was a large covered area with marble columns which supported a cedar roof. So this was a outdoor but shaded area, a giant portico. Uh, it's located on the east side of the Temple Mount area along the eastern wall that overlooks the Kidron Valley. It was, all, uh, it was all that really remained of Solomon's original temple before the temple was rebuilt. It faced the Mount of Olives just above the Garden of Gethsemane. It was about 23 feet wide and 220 feet long. Jesus came here on occasion. For example, in John 10, we read, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, this incident that just happened with a healing of the lame man certainly was an answer to that question. Jesus is the Christ. This is likely the same spot where in Acts, where the, in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost takes place. Again, another crowd who hears them speaking in their own languages. After the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2, the Jerusalem disciples would use Solomon's porch, kind of a public area, as their regular place of assembly. Later on, for example, in Acts 5, verse 12, the Bible tells us that the believers congregated in the temple every day. They, quote, were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So this became the hangout, if you will, for the early church. So as this curious crowd assembles, Peter seizes the moment to preach. Reminds me a little bit of Paul in Acts 17 when he's in Jerusalem, I mean in Athens, and he ends up walking around speaking to whoever, and he winds up uh, at the Areopagus with an opportunity to preach. We see this kind of thing happening over and over. So this was not a planned crusade. They just went out, were being faithful, doing what God called them to do, and God was providing these great opportunities. So um, as 
so as this uh, happens, Peter, again, is going to seize this opportunity, uh, just like he did on Pentecost, uh, after we had the incident of outpouring of the Spirit and the tongues. And so both were mighty acts of the exalted Christ. He's in heaven pouring out his Spirit. Both were dramatic signs which proclaimed that, in fact, he was the Lord and he was the Messiah, he was the Savior, and both aroused the, the crowd's interest. So after this amazed crowd runs together, Peter, we read, responded to the people. For one thing, he wanted to quickly deflect attention away from himself, and he's careful to refer to God in a very familiar and really almost formal way when he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Don't look to me. I didn't do this. It was this God that you already know about. And so, in fact, Peter's designation of God expressed his understanding that what was new in Jesus uh, uh, possessed a direct continuity with the Old Testament. This is essentially a quotation from Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, where Moses hears God speaking from the burning bush. And it says there, uh, then he said, do not draw near to this place, take your sandals off, off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Peter, again, we've seen this over and over, is citing uh, Old Testament passages. This is no doubt Peter's, uh, it's no doubt that Peter's audience would have known this text and would have understood the point of reference. Jesus himself had quoted it when debating with the Sadducees in the temple just a few weeks earlier. We read about that in Luke chapter 20. And so Peter certainly knew what he was doing. Peter is very shrewd at this point. But the point is that Exodus 3 is the moment when God calls Moses at the burning bush and tells him to go back uh, from the desert into Egypt and to lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. Peter, by quoting this passage, is saying to the crowd, it's happening again. Only bigger. The next point Peter makes is that Jesus was the innocent servant. And this idea of the innocent servant should send us back to Isaiah chapter 53, one of the all-time central passages in early Christian understanding about who Jesus was and why he died. It's true that Jesus was put on trial, but the reality was, of course, that he was innocent, and even Pilate, the judge, said so. Peter tells this crowd that they had handed Jesus over to be killed, and they disavowed him before Pilate. He was delivered up to death, and Barabbas, who was actually guilty, was released instead. So we have the innocent being killed, we have the guilty being set free. Luke makes the same point in his gospel when he says that Pilate, quote, released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So Jesus dies on a charge of which he was innocent, but plenty of others were guilty. 
And it's a matter of literal historical truth as well as of theological interpretation that he bore the sins of many. Not only was Jesus innocent of the crimes he was charged with, Peter says he was the holy one and the just. So as Peter is explaining why, remember, keep this context, he's explaining why the crippled man was healed. This crippled man has been so dramatically healed, he directs the crowd's thoughts first to Exodus, that is, that God is freeing those who had been enslaved. This healing is a picture of that. And it's true that they had killed the author of life, but God wonderfully reverses the rejection of Jesus, raises him from the dead, and Peter says the apostles are witnesses of this incredible, mighty resurrection. So then it's by faith in the once rejected but now resurrected and reigning Jesus that the crippled man that you see was made whole. That's the answer. You want to know what happened? You want to know what this means? This is what it means. John Stott wrote about the names or titles that Peter uh, ascribes to Jesus, uh, quoting him, Servant and Christ, Holy One and Source of Life, Prophet and Stone. These titles speak of the uniqueness of Jesus in his sufferings and glory, his character and mission, his revelation and redemption, All this is encapsulated in his name and helps to explain its saving power. Peter describes Jesus, for example, as the prince of life. And the word prince can be translated author or the originator of life. He is the sovereign one who brings life, who initiates new life. As N.T. Wright puts it, he he pioneers the way through death, speaking of Jesus, uh, he pioneers the way through death, decay, and corruption, and out the other side into a new kind of life that nobody had imagined before. They killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. So the resurrection continues to be at the center You know, when we're talking to people, sometimes people think, I don't know how to share the gospel. This is the gospel. We need to, you need to be talking to people about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If that's not true, then there is no gospel. And if it is true, it's everything. It changes the game. It changes everything. We'll say a bit more about that in a moment. So the resurrection continues to be at the heart of the proclamation of the church and the explanation of why new life is now happening. The work of Jesus continues unabated. Even though he's died and ascended, he's still at work. Do you understand why this is so powerful? If it's true, it changes everything. It doesn't just get you to go to heaven. It changes absolutely everything. One of the biggest problems that the world has, maybe the central problem that the world has, is it does not know why it's here or where it's going. Not a clue. Professing to be wise, they become fools. They don't know why we're here or where we're going. Our world is full, therefore, of anxiety 
and fear. And if you look in the news and you look around you, you look next door, there is anxiety and fear. And sometimes there's anxiety and fear in you too. We are groping in darkness. And that is what is wrong with our world right now. And we have the answer to the problem. But we're cowering in the corner too often, too timid, too afraid to speak up and say this because we don't want to look too religious or too this or that. We're intimidated by them and they have nothing. We know why we're here. To glorify God. That is man's chief end. And we know where we are going. We are going to spend eternity in His presence. Everlasting life. The Apostle Paul will lay out these these two options. This is it. It's a binary choice. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ is preached that He is raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Your faith is worthless. As I've said before, let's dismiss and go home and not come back. This is a waste of your time and my time. And believe me, a lot of the world right now will be applauding and saying, Amen, that's true. Yes, Paul says, and we are found false witnesses of God. All this stuff about the apostles witnessing the resurrection of Jesus. He said, we're liars. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, of whom he did not raise, if if that's the case. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. So that's there's one choice. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, all your loved ones, all the people you cared about, all them, they've perished. It's over. Lights out. Finished done, annihilated, as though they never, ever existed and their life meant nothing. If, boy, that's an important word, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Pitiful might be a better word. And then there's, I think, my favorite word in the Bible, but. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This powerful name of the resurrected Jesus is what has produced, Peter says, the perfect 
healing of this man who was lame from birth. Luke uses an unusual word which means complete wholeness. He didn't have a limp. He didn't ease into walking. He didn't teeter. He was walking and leaping and praising God over and over and over. It's the powerful name of the resurrected Jesus that made this man strong, and it is the gospel then and now. Peter directed the crowd's attention away from both the healed, crippled man and the apostles to Christ, whom men disavowed by killing him, but God vindicated by raising him, and whose name, having been appropriated by faith, was strong enough to completely heal this man. Verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. So he's indicted them and he said, but I know you didn't know what you were doing. He was echoing the Old Testament distinction between sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. Next, although they didn't know what they were doing, the good news is God knew what he was doing. There is just one thing left to do, Peter says. Here's your contribution. Repent. Turn around. Turn to God. The fruit of repentance produces three successive blessings. He elaborates on this in his sermon. First, that your sins may be wiped out. Verse 19. Even the sin of killing the author of life can be forgiven. It means, the word here, the Greek word means to wash off, to erase, to obliterate your sins. It's used in the book of Revelation, both of God who wipes away every tear, he obliterates our tears, and of Christ who refuses to erase our names from the book of life. The second promised blessing in verse 19, is that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The Greek word can mean rest or relief, respite. Anybody here use some refreshment? You remember what Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. The third promised blessing is that the Father may send Jesus Christ who has been appointed for you. Until the times of restoration. This word speaks of the eschatological, the future restoration that which Jesus called the regeneration, this is when all of creation will be liberated from its bondage and God will make a new heaven and a new earth. This final perfection awaits the return of Christ. This is where we're going. Though that final day will truly be wonderful, it can be anticipated now with times of refreshment in the present. 
N.T. Wright summarizes the restoration this way. This is one way of putting a central truth for which the early Christians had a wide variety of expressions. God would, quote, sum up all things in Christ. Through Christ, he would reconcile all things to himself, making peace by his blood shed on the cross. He will make new heavens and new earth in which justice will dwell. He will overcome every power which destroys and corrupts his good creation so that eventually God will be all in all. The whole creation will be set free from its slavery to decay to share the liberty of the glory of God's children. What has changed now is the final restoration has already happened to Jesus himself. What God is going to do to the whole creation, he's already done for Jesus in raising him from the dead. When Jesus finally reappears, heaven and earth will come together as one. And that will be the renewal of all things. Again, N.T. Wright ties the future restoration and the current refreshment of Christ. He says the notion of refreshment, though itself unusual in the New Testament, is by no means unusual in the Christian experience. As again and again in worship and sacrament, in reading the scriptures, in Christian fellowship and prayer, we taste in advance just a little bit of the coming together of heaven and earth the sense that this is what we were made for, the new world which we shall finally enjoy, it is there available, ready for all who will seriously seek it. And I thought, hmm, I wonder, will we have to listen to sermons in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth? And the answer is no. Sermons are just signs pointing the way. We'll be there. We don't need any more signs. We have no more reason to be anxious, brothers and sisters. We can relax. We know how the story ends. Spiritual refreshment and universal restoration were all foreshadowed in the Old Testament, too. This is not really brand new. Again, remember what Jesus said to the apostles repeatedly after the resurrection. For example, in Luke 24, 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We've already seen that Peter, we see that Peter isn't just making this up or tossing out some kind of empty promises, he insists in more detail this time that all of this happened in direct fulfillment of what the prophets had already said. We've already seen Peter over and over and over appealing to the Old Testament as his authority for his doctrine and his practice. This should, this should really put an end to the dispensational notion that the Old Testament authority is obsolete. The New Testament is utterly dependent upon the Old Testament authority. So Peter concludes this sermon first with allusions to three major prophetic strands which are associated with Moses, Samuel, and his successors, and Abraham. So remember the context of his audience are Jews who have gathered here in the temple. 
So first, for Moses truly said to the fathers, remember, this is Peter's sermon to these that have gathered, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This is no sissy Jesus here. This is no soft Jesus. He's God. Third, uh, second, verses 25, 24 and the first part of 25. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold of these days you are sons of the prophets. Peter clearly regards the many and varied strands of the Old Testament prophecy as a united testimony apply, applying to these days when he was speaking because they are fulfilled in Christ and in his people. And then third, Peter refers to, quote, the covenant, verse 25, last part of verse 25, the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was a foundational promise of the Old Testament, and it's the same promise that Peter cited in Acts 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. The promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So first, the physical descendants of Abraham, as is emphasized several times by Paul later, who will say the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Second, later Paul argues, especially in his letters to the Romans and the Galatians, that the promised blessings uh, blessing is for all believers, including Gentiles, who by faith have become children of Abraham. And what is the blessing? It's not forgiveness only, but righteousness. Verse 26, the last part. For God sent him, sent Jesus, to bless you. I think of John 3.16. God sent Jesus, he says, to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. A clean slate and a new life. So in this sermon on Solomon's porch, Peter presents Christ to the crowd according to the scriptures successively. The, the suffering servant, the Moses-like prophet, the Davidic king, and the seed of Abraham. He is proclaiming much more than simply a few random proof texts, which, if you strain and stretch a bit, can be made to sound like it could be talking about Jesus. He is understanding the Old Testament as a single great story which constantly points forward to something that God was going to do through Abraham and his family, through Abraham and his descendants, something that Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and the rest were pointing to as well, that great something was ultimately the restoration of all things. 
The time when everything would be put and made right at last. You know, one thing that is common among humanity, besides anxiety, is that strong desire for justice. Something's wrong. It's not fair. We cry for justice. Little children cry for justice. It's just built in. Something is wrong with this world, and Jesus came to set it right. And now, he says, it has happened. It's happened in Jesus, and if you're a true follower of Jesus, you're part of it. The point of saying that this final restoration can come forward into the present is that God's purpose is to see it happen not in just some broad historical sense, but to individual men, women, and children right now in anticipation. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, anyone who turns away from the aimless, anxiety-filled lives they've been leading and turns to God instead, anyone, including people who call for Jesus to be crucified, Anyone and everyone in advance can know the joy of being forgiven, of being refreshed by the love and mercy of God, and of discovering new life and purpose in following Jesus. He'll change your marriage. He'll change the way you raise your kids. He'll change the way you handle your money. He'll change the way you work. He'll change the way you treat your neighbors. He'll change it all. With a quotation of the promise to Abraham in verse 25, Peter is hinting at something quite new which is yet to fully appear, but which will become a major theme in the book of Acts, namely the time when non-Jews will discover that the Jewish promise fulfilled in Jesus is available equally to them as well. But before that, Peter tells this assembly of Jews in the temple. And remember, it's a big crowd. Here's what he says in verse 26, our last verse. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. God had come to Israel first though he never intended to stop there. So once again, God is graciously offering this blessing and many to the Jews, and many will believe and receive that blessing. 3,000 already had. However, trouble is about to start. In fact, it has already started. Resurrections do that. We saw a little preview of that. Remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John 11? And then by John 12, they want to kill Lazarus. we got to get him back in the grave. This is a problem. Well, Lazarus was just the warm-up act. This was a much bigger problem. And by the time we get to Acts 13, we read this. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. 
But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew timid and fearful. Bold. And said, quote, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews, but since you rejected it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That harken back to Acts 1. Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So, all of this, the Pentecost demonstration of God's power and now the healing of the lame man, aroused the indignation and the antagonism of the authorities. The devil cannot endure the exaltation of Christ. So he stirred up the Sanhedrin to persecute the apostles. And we're going to close our story or pause our story to be continued next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for demonstrating your great power in and through Jesus and in and through your people. Thank you for forgiveness and refreshing and for giving us the sure and certain hope, not only of the resurrection of the body, but also of the restoration of all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All of this uh, is a comprehensive testimony to Jesus, all that Peter had spoken there in Solomon's porch, on Solomon's porch, as Rejected by men, but vindicated by God as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, as demanding repentance and promising blessing, and as the author and giver of life, physically to the healed lame man and spiritually to all those who believe. If you... In a sense, there was a crowd there, but there's a sense in which if you are not like the lame man, if you're just part of the crowd and you think somehow that's sufficient, you're missing the point because it's essential that you believe, that you be, that you look to Jesus, even as the lame man looked when Peter said, look at me, look at us. Peter was representing Christ there. You have to receive the powerful healing touch of the resurrected Jesus. And so I invite you to believe on his name. Or if you have known the healing touch of Jesus, but have grown weary, today's a really good day to look at him again. It's an excellent time 
to be refreshed. I want to just read three passages, short passages here before we come to the table. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 23, 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And Romans 13, 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Amen. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage, wisdom, and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to eager service in your church. Send laborers into your harvest and give your word free course to bring the joy of salvation to the many who are yet in darkness. Bless now this Lord's Day, our feast, and our rest. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.